thanks for listening to The Church at 112, where we gather together to encourage and equip each other into a growing relationship with Jesus. Now, here's today's message. We're finishing up on our summer series on the Minor Prophets. And I love that they, they were minor, they're called Minor Prophets, they were little books, they were they were more significant than we often think of. Uh, for those of us that have been in church for a long time, the Minor Prophets had a major message and all of the ones that we've looked at so far, and the crazy thing was uh, that all the ones that we've looked at so far, and even, even Malachi here, they go from a, a message of judgment to a message of redemption. And it's, it's usually a lot of bad news. Spoiler alert, today's gonna to be a lot of bad news. Like I was looking at my notes, I'm like, wow, there's, there's a lot more bad news. In fact, I think there's two pages of bad news where normally there's just, anyway, there's a lot of bad news. But then there's always good news. And that's really the story of God. That's the story of our deliverance. That's the story of our redemption. That's the story of like all of the stuff that we've gone through and walked through, the bondages and the, and the, the things, the storms of life that just come down on us and seem to trap us. And then, and then, there's, then there's good stuff. But as, as we look at all that, and as we get started, it reminds me of a phrase, that's the Lord calling. It reminds me of a phrase, the world is watching. The world is watching. Now, I would be a terrible, terrible pastor if I did not mention, that's a wrestling reference. Uh, like starting in 2008, the, the World Wrestling Entertainment, like they would tag all the beginning of their, their TV shows with the world is watching. But really it goes beyond wrestling. For those of you that are normal people and you just want sports references, like the world literally is watching. The Olympics right now are going on. The Olympics. And so I looked up some of the data on Olympics. Like how many people in the world actually watch the Olympics? I was fascinated. Um, Summer Olympics, 1996, Atlanta. It's always hot in Atlanta. Always. I'm going to Atlanta at the end of this week and I'm like, oh, I'm dreading it. I'm, I have to wear business casual and I don't, I don't, I don't like to dress up, obviously. And it's going to be hot. 1996, July, three and a half billion people around the world tuned in to the Olympics, especially, especially like they have hard data on this, especially when Muhammad Ali was there and he was lighting the Olympic torch. In fact, Muhammad Ali was one of the most watched performers of all time of all time, whether it's sports, music, entertainment, like he was the most watched. Like you can look up like most watched TV shows of all time and you'll see Muhammad Ali's fights in most of those. It's fascinating. 1969, the Apollo 11 moon landing. I like this statistic, 652 people, 652 million people around the world watched it. You're like, ah, that's not a lot of people. That's like a fifth of the world's population back in 1969 when a lot of folks didn't have TVs. And they were watching because the world was watching. Bob Dylan had a song, 1963, it was called When the Ship Comes In. And there was a little line in it talking about how the whole world was watching. And that was actually a phrase that they would use. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all saw the Netflix movie. It's a, not a great one, but great message. The trial of the Chicago Seven. 
in a trial of the Chicago 7, there's a phrase that they keep chanting. And I'm like, is that really real? And so I looked it up because I'm like, how historically accurate is this? And they kept chanting, the world is watching. The world is watching. The world is watching. They were, they were standing. They were protesting outside the Democratic National Convention there in uh, 1968. And they were using that line from that song, because the world is watching. Whether it's the Olympics, and everyone's watching the Olympics now, whether it's Michael Jackson's funeral, this was strange, July 7th, 2009. A lot of these things happened in July. I don't know if you noticed, July 20th, 1969 was Apollo 11. July of 96 was the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Uh, we had, I think, I think there was two to, three million, uh, two to three billion people watching the Olympics the other day that have just started. And it was always strange to me because like the Olympics would occur at weird times when, when it's overseas. And you're just like, I don't want to stay up that late. But apparently people do. Michael Jackson's funeral, 2009, July 7, two billion people around the world watched the King of Pop. And like now, who, who talks about him? Not a lot. It's just strange like how much the people around the world, and I say the people meaning us as well, the world is watching everything we do. Malachi has a lot of information we're diving into. David Platt, so you can go on and flip to, there to Malachi, but David Platt divides Malachi into three different sections. He says, that the Lord confronts people, the people question the Lord, and then the Lord responds. Uh, David Dockery, he, he, he has it as three addresses, not divisions, but addresses. He says that in the book of Malachi, it's divided into honoring the Lord, faithfulness, and then a return or a remembrance of who God is. Like any way that you want to slice Malachi, but here's where we're going to start, and here's what we're going to lean into, because this, I think, is the focal point of our indictment, but also our redemption. And it's this little phrase here, Malachi chapter one, verse five. He says, God says, your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. You yourself, your eye, your own eyes will see this. So if we were to put one little phrase, if you were to like tidy it all up into one little phrase, the world is watching your walk with God. The world is watching your walk with God. Your kids are watching it. Your friends, your neighbors, your family members, your enemies. The world is watching your walk with God. They're watching what you do. Whether you're a group of guys that are at a coffee shop meeting and folks are watching like, hey, what are these guys doing? They got Bibles out and they're drinking lattes at six o'clock on, on a Thursday. What's going on here? Or whether you're at the office and, and you're on Facebook and you're not supposed to be on Facebook at the office and you're posting like a Bible verse or maybe it's just a funny meme. People are watching your walk with God. So it affects us in a couple ways. I want to give you some background first. I want to tell you that Malachi is fascinating because he's the last minor prophet, of course. He's the last minor prophet. E even not just in our Bible, not in just the Hebrew scriptures, but he literally is like the last prophet Time-wise, if you're looking at the timeline of prophets, he's the last one. The last message of God that we see before the book of Matthew. I love it because like if you look, like in my copy of God's Word, Malachi ends, and then most, most people in their Bibles have like a blank page. And that's like four, that represents like 400 years of silence. Like Malachi is the last message, the last time that God's going to speak to his people for 400 years. Now, we did a famous Last Words series earlier this year, and so you can listen to that on podcast. But in that, we were looking at the famous Last Words of Jesus because you always want to, like, if someone's about to die 
and I work hospice, so like I, that my brain goes there automatically. If someone's about to die, like you want to lean into what they're saying because what they're saying is, is usually pretty important. And Jesus, in his famous last words, like he's like, hey, I got a few things I really want to share with you. They're really, really important. And the different gospels recorded different last sayings of him. But here in Malachi, these are the last words of God before God's like, hey, you're going to go through some stuff. And I brought you out of Egypt, and I brought you out of some, some bondage, and I brought you out of now Babylon or Persia or Syria or whoever. I brought you out of some stuff, and you, you, things look okay. But I want to leave you with a few final words before, before we take a break. Malachi was written, so if you're looking at timelines, if, you write, if you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, Malachi was written around 460 to 4, uh, 420 B.C., 400 BC, it was after, here's what's cool, it's like after all, all of the Jewish people, both the people of Judah and the people of Israel, after those divided kingdoms were all the things that happened to them, and we learned about some of that in our background here in the, in the Minor Prophets, after all the Jewish people returned from wherever they were, and they came back to one spot, they came back to their Jerusalem, they came back to their, their temple, they came back to their holy city. We find that Nehemiah, this is where kind of Nehemiah starts to take place, and he, he, he takes a survey of everything that was going. It's so cool about Nehemiah. His job was to be a professional eater. He was a foodie. And so the king would say, hey, uh, make sure that's not poison for me. Sure, got it, no problem. And like he would eat the stuff, and he's like, I'm not dead yet. And so like they'd go eat. He had a great job. I would love to. Anyway, so he, he went back to his homeland, now that everyone was returning and he like evaluated the place, it's like, hey, what do we need to do to fix this place? What do we need to do to fix everything? And so Nehemiah starts to rebuild the walls and rebuilds the temple and he, and everyone starts to be able to worship again. Ezra takes place around this time as well. So worship was restored and that's kind of an important point here in Malachi and we'll look at that in just a moment. So Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of taking place around here. The prophet Malachi is the last one speaking. We know that Ezra is kind of rebuilding the priests and the folks that are reading the word of God and proclaiming the word of God. And we know that Nehemiah is like, hey, I just want to make a really good safe space for us to do this in. Some more background. Malachi's name means my messenger. And so he speaks to both Judah and Israel, the reunited people. The people are back together. After hundreds of years, the people are back together. They'd had bad kings and bad choices, and they split, and now they've been in exiles, and they've been slaughtered, and they've been this, but now they're back together, and they're united. And God has a message to deliver in my messenger. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says it this way. God says, see, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, again, talking about the worship, He'll come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he's coming. And it's different than Hosea chapter 5, verse 6. Hosea says it a little bit differently. We studied Hosea maybe a month ago. Hosea, goodness gracious, what a, um, what a life. Hosea 5, 6. They go to their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. Like they go to... They go to their stuff. They go to the stuff that's underneath them. They go to the, and it's kind of like us. I mean, like we have families to take care of or we have kids to take care of or we have, you know, like we have, we have jobs or we have chores or we have whatever. We have things that we have to do. And he's like, Hosea says, they go to everything else looking for 
the Lord, seeking the Lord, and they don't find him. Well, no, duh. They don't find him because he's, that's not where you go. It's kind of funny, like, whether it's my line of work with hospice or whether it's my line of work when, it, like, when I was full-time at a church and, and I would go to people's houses or I'd get to talk with people and they'd say, well, I don't have to go to church, go to a physical location to be with God. No, you don't. That's one of the easiest places to find him. It's one of the easiest places because we were, we were meant for, for Christian community. So of course they wouldn't find him. And so instead, Malachi says, or God says through Malachi, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his, not his flocks, not his herds. He will come to his temple. It's like, I want to see you in the midst of people who are actively worshiping after God. The people of God, they knew how to seek God. And now they've been reminded, and now they've been working towards that, except they still weren't. And that's where we get into this message. So here's the bad news. Are you ready for a lot of bad news? <laughs> it's a lot of bad news today, which is great. So for those that are listening, um, we get to eat after this, and so we get to fill our bellies. But for those that are listening, they're like, man, I just feel really depressed after this. So here we go. Bad news. The people knew how to seek God, but they didn't. They knew what to do. They knew what they were supposed to do. They, they, knew, they knew everything that the Word had told them. They knew what the law had told them. They knew, they knew everything. They knew how to seek God. And, like, and, then, and then Nehemiah had spent a lot of time and a lot of other people's resources from other countries' resources rebuilding an opportunity for people to go back and worship God. And then Ezra's like, hey, I'm going to build up the priests again, and we're gonna, everyone's going to know. It was so cool because he'd, he'd actually have people stand at the reading of the Word of God. I remember one time I was at, at a conference called Passion years ago. I think, uh, I think Trey may have been there. And they, had, they, they started reading the book of Ephesians. And they just kept reading. And after a while, like, so it, was, it was weird. Because everyone usually sits down for preaching, right? And so this wasn't preaching. This was just reading. And so everyone had sat down after the singing and they'd open their Bibles and like they just kept reading and they kept reading and they kept reading. And after a while, you started to see people stand, just randomly just stand. And it was so powerful to see people by the end of reading the reading of the Word of God, like people were just, it's like maybe 30, 40 minutes just reading Scripture. These people knew how to seek God, but they didn't. John Piper, he, he says, here are some of the issues and there's several. Here are some of the issues, and I reworded his, his phrases, but here are some of the issues that the people of Malachi, or the, the Israelites, the people of God, were having, and this is what Malachi is addressing. Number one, they doubted God's love. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Man, don't we need to hear that? I have loved you. Yet you ask, well, how have you loved us? And they doubted God's love. They even like, get kind of personal with it. Number two, their worship wasn't pure. Chapter one, verse seven, God says, by presenting defiled food on my altar. Well, how, how have we defiled you, God? We, we ask, or they ask. God says, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible. He's like, when you, when you say like what I've made for you and the opportunity, the way that I made for you to worship me, when you say that, that's not right. When you say that, that's not the way to worship. And like, you just put, you put chicken nuggets and you put tater tots. And you, and you put fried Oreos. Funny story. Has nothing to do with my notes. We, um, there, I like pro wrestling. Obviously, there was a pro wrestler we invited to come speak at a church a long time ago. And 
he'd never had fried Oreos. And so we went to the grocery store, uh, a group of us and this pro wrestler. And he's like, hey, I'll go on and buy everything. We're like, cool, all right, man. So he whips out his expensive wrestling credit card and he goes on and buys his stuff. And he ate like eight fried Oreos. Y'all ever eaten fried Oreos before? They're like, I think it's three or 400, ca 400 calories per fried Oreo. He ate like eight. So I think he ingested about 2,500 to 3,000 calories just that sitting. He's like, ah. So how, how'd that taste for you? And he's like, I'm going to go back to the hotel and rest up for a little bit. Like, I bet you are. I bet you are. And like, we do that all the time. Like we, we, we put not literally bad food on the table, but sometimes we put bad spiritual stuff on the table. Like before God, we're like, hey, God, this is, this is the best I've got for you. I, I, shared, I shared the verse of the day from you version. And, and that's all I did today for you. Isn't that great? But let me tell you what I read on Residents of Diamond Head webpage. Like I read, oh my gosh, the geese were out again and like they were stopped and there was a cool little video about it. But then like people started complaining about it. And then all of a sudden, like I got sidetracked because so that was really depressing. So I went down and then they started tearing up this other local business. And I don't know what that has to do with geese. And, but then all of a sudden, like, oh, I spent like an hour on Facebook. But God, that was a really cool Bible verse, wasn't it? And we do that all the time. Spiritually, we put... Bad spiritual food before the Lord saying, I thought I was worshiping you. Number three, the priests did not speak truth nor with peace or integrity. The priests did not speak with truth or with peace or integrity. And that's a, a really bad deal because these priests were kind of in charge of making sure that the people were pointed in the right direction. And chapter two, verses six through eight, true instruction, God says, true instruction was in his mouth, the, the mouth of the priests, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. That all sounds great, right? Verse seven, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. All that sounds right. So that you're, you, this is a good thing that you would do. This is what you should do. Verse eight, you, on the other hand, have turned from the way and you've caused many to stumble in your instruction. I would say for a moment, just imagine Barrett or Trey or I all of a sudden leading you astray. You wouldn't know it. Like they didn't know it. Just imagine us like leading you astray, just theologically or just whatever. And it would be like God would be saying to us, technically, I mean, you've, you've not walked with integrity. You've not walked with peace. You've not honored me with your lips. You haven't honored truth. If one day I came in, I said, you know, we're not going to preach the Bible. If we didn't start off, and this is what I love, and there's some folks that are listening. We have people in Germany listening. I had no clue. But imagine someone listening to this and they don't know that we start out every gathering with scripture at the front before we even get into songs about God and Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in the gospel. And then before we get into like the preaching of the word and the exhortation here, imagine like if we threw all that out the window and we started singing dashboard confessional songs. They're still banned, by the way, in case you didn't know. Imagine we started singing them and we just started giving you pep talks. And God would say, man, that's terrible because you're my priests. Now, Trey read to you earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2, right? I want to reread that for emphasis here. 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a lot of hearkening back to some Old Testament prophets here. 
But chapter two, verse nine, Peter says, but you, you that are listening, reading, understanding this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So a chosen race, like God chose you. A royal priesthood, like you are a kingly set of priests. A holy nation, like we are set apart, a people for his possession, so that, and this is the so that, like for a reason or a purpose, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Like God's like, hey, I've called you, I chose you, I called you, like you are my people, like literally my people, my peeps, hashtag. Like you are my folks and I made you for a purpose and the purpose is so that you can proclaim what I've done and show people the light. That's your job. So it's not just like what would happen if Trey or Barrett or myself started leading you astray. What would happen? if we started leading each other astray. Because Peter tells us, and this is a part of the new covenant, we're gonna get into that just very briefly in just a moment. But in the new way, the new life, the new type of living that Jesus has called us to, we all are a kingdom of, what do you say? Royal priests. We're all a kingdom of royal priests. No, there's just one priest. No, no, no. We're all a kingdom of priests. Well, there's one pope. He's not in the Bible. Where there's one chosen nation, that is us, believers in Christ. And all of our goals is to show the world what Christ is like. Like when someone sees you at work, when they see you on Facebook, Residence of Diamond, wherever, when they see you, they need to see what, what God is like. It doesn't mean that you need to wear your what would Jesus do socks. If you have those, you can burn them. You can give them away to someone. Use them for mitts to clean the house or whatever. You don't have to be one of those weirdos, but they, want to, they need to see what God is like through our compassion, through our grace to our wives or our husband or our friends or our family. They need to see our, our goodness. They need to see our, our, our ability to love. They need to see our ability to forgive. So, they doubted God's love. Their worship wasn't pure. The priests, which are also us, didn't speak with truth, honor, or integrity. Number four, they did not keep their covenant with God. Chapter two, verse 10. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, what does that mean? Now, covenant is a promise. A lot of us um, probably got married underneath what we call a contract. You do this and then I do this. Hopefully you got married underneath a covenant, which means like, I, I, I promise to do, I want to promise to do for you no matter what. Without, without obligation, without condition. I just want to, I want to promise to love you. Like I know if I've done your wedding and I've done two of yours and half of yours, half of yours. But and I'm just kidding. Maybe like a quarter. I read scripture. And he doesn't matter. Whoever's listening is like, who is he talking about? Someone in the building, they need to come. All right, so here we go. Covenant. But these folks, God says, you broke the covenant. So there's a few covenants. Number five, there's, there's five covenants. So here they are. And I'm going to really oversimplify these because today is not necessarily about all of these covenants. It's about what God has done. In fact, all of life is always about what God has done, right? First covenant, the Noahic, Noah. It's easy for me to say, Noach, Noach, 
N-O-A-H-I-C, Noahic Covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Noah, which says this, God will preserve humanity. If I'm oversimplifying things, and I admittedly am oversimplifying all of these for clarity and for brevity today, God will preserve humanity. We find that in Genesis chapter 9. He's like, I'll never flood the earth again. Guess what? Diamond has not had, had, we've had two days without rain. Praise the Lord. Amen, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. God said, I will never flood the earth again. I will preserve, another way of putting it is, I will preserve humanity. We see that in Genesis 9. Number two, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, God says, uh, God essentially says that he will bless all nations through Abraham especially, specifically, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God says, I will bless all nations through Abraham. He's like, your descendants will be as many as the sands on the seashore, and they will all, all nations will be blessed through you. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. Number three, the Mosaic covenant, and that's the one that they broke. That's the one that they were breaking. All of these tie together. God wants to preserve humanity. He wants us to bless other people. But the third one is the one that they broke. It's the one that we break a lot. It's the Mosaic Covenant. God, by grace, will bless obedience. That sounds so strange. A lot of people would probably put a lot of emphasis on obedience. And there is. There's, it's, that's the only really conditional one. There's a condition like you, here, you, you do this and then, and then you will get this. It's a reward system. And I know that sounds strange, but the, they were tied to laws. And so it was obedience blessings or curses is what the old testament would often talk about often for generations and generations and generations meaning your mistakes affect other people thankfully god has grace so that's the one i want to focus on god by grace will bless obedience exodus chapter 18 uh, kind of goes into it a little bit but i want to read deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 9 it says it this way for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. Have we heard that already this morning? Yeah, we have. You are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Have we heard that before? Yeah. Though he has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of on the face of the earth. God chose you. Verse seven, the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you are more numerous than all peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh of King of Egypt, which we just sang about in that one song. Verse 9, know that, the, know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant, loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. God keeps his end of the covenant with those who, what's it say? Love him and keep his commands. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. He's like, there's, there's rules. And it's not because you need to be a rule follower. Certainly don't be a rule breaker, but these are, it's like a boundary. These are, this is the way it's been set up to protect you, to protect your heart, to protect your family. Like this is what, the best way of living. So for the Jewish people, it's like, hey, it's not a great idea to eat, eat crawfish. And they're like, man, that's, I wish I lived in the South. This is terrible. Thankfully, Peter had a dream and God said, hey, it's okay. You can have crawfish now. You can even suck their heads. I don't think that's in scripture. But he said he can have those kind of things. But that's the one that they broke, the Mosaic Covenant. There's a Davidic Covenant, so it's the Covenant of David. God made a promise with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
God made a covenant with David. Essentially, if I were to boil it down, over, oversimplified, God will reign through David's line. So God made another promise. These are all times when God, are making, God is making promises. God is, it, and if you haven't heard this ad nauseum yet through this series, that life is all about God. He's everywhere, in, in, in all, and so we should look, that sounded really strange. He's not like, he's not like in the chair. That's strange. But there's no place that you can go that God isn't. There's no place you can run where God isn't. He's always, he said that he'd never leave us, forsake us. He's always right there with us. We see that in Psalm 16. We see it over and over again in the New Testament. It's God's promise of faithfulness in the Old Testament. Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. And it's a good chunk to read, but it's worthwhile. So now this is what you were to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my, over my people Israel. Like God chose, again, God chose somebody, not based on who they were, but because God just wanted to out of his good, gracious benevolence. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. Why? Because the world is watching. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judgment, judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, the Lord declares this to you. The Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, guess what? I will raise up after you your descendant, singular, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Is he talking about Solomon or is he talking about Jesus? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father and he will be my son when he does wrong, Solomon. I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom, and this is what I love, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And so we see in the minor prophets, and we haven't really talked about this a whole lot, the minor prophets, and even especially Isaiah, like they talk about the, the stump of Jesse, which Jesse was David's dad. They talk about the stump of Jesse or the root of Jesse and like how out of that line of people, out of David's line of people, that there's going to be an eternal king forever and ever and ever. And we know his name is Jesus Christ. So that was the promise through David. He's like, I will have a king reign forever through your line. Number five, Jesus talks about a new covenant. It's the one covenant that we find in the New Testament, the new covenant that God will save through Christ. And I know it's oversimplified, but for brevity, uh, I think that's where we're going to go today. A couple chapter, a couple things that you can look at here. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 23, and that's where Jesus is having the Last Supper with people. And so we always read it when we do the Lord's Supper here. And Jesus is talking about, uh, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured for you. But then we forget, sometimes we gloss over that he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And, he said, and Paul talks about it again in 1 Corinthians, and they talk about it a couple other times in Scripture. So I want to read to you out of Hebrews chapter 7, very briefly, uh, verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Lots and lots of verses kind of talk, Jesus is this better covenant, this new covenant, this new way, this new promise from God that he will save through Christ. So what's the point? 
The point is, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. You show the world what I'm like. God is essentially saying, you, your job is to show the world what I'm like, and I want you to take it seriously. And guess what? They didn't. They couldn't keep their promises to God. They couldn't keep their promises to their marriages. We find that in chapter 2, verse 15 of Malachi. Didn't God make them one, the two become one, and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully. If you're married, this is for you. Watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. So just quickly in summary, they doubted God's love. Their worship wasn't pure. The priests didn't speak with truth and honor and integrity. Number four, they did not keep their covenant with God. And then they didn't, they didn't keep their, their covenant in marriage. And the last one is their offerings to God were terrible. A lot of people preach on tithing using, using this book, and you can. The point is, the priests, the people, their offerings to God sucked. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 says it this way. God says, well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. Well, how do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. Well, what are the payments of the tenth? Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 32, talk a little bit about the tenth. There's a lot of different types of verses, and we won't go into it today. But essentially, they were ordered at that time to give a tenth of things, and they weren't doing it. In the New Testament, we find the way that we are to give to God a little bit differently. Uh, Jesus doesn't talk about a tenth, and Paul doesn't talk about a tenth. But we find in the Old Testament that they were, and they weren't doing it. And I don't know where to begin with all of those indictments, except this. They acted unfaithfully with their friends and their family, and therefore God. Or another way, a more succinct way of putting it is how we treat others impacts our love of God. How we treat other people impacts our love of God. Here's your application. How do you treat those around you? I want you to put a number, a scale on it, one to 10. Like, how do you, how do you treat your kids? I can tell you how I treat my kids. How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your coworkers? How do you treat your boss? Amen. How do you treat people around you? Well, James, that's not fair to put a scale on it. Yeah, it is. And here's why. Because like literally in Malachi, they put a scale on it. They put a number on money. They put a number on your offerings. They put, there was, there was a rubric or a grading system that they had that they were not checking off any of those boxes. They failed on every account. And so it's fair. Why? Because putting a number on things in this particular situation helps them to see how to improve. So I want you to rate how you treat those around you and bring your rating up. Like improve your love towards other people. That was all the bad news. You ready for some good news? All right. Number one, God chose to love you. God chose to love you. He didn't have to but he chose to. And we could get into a message about God's sovereignty or God's election or any of those kind of things. We're not going to do that because those, those are secondary matters. But I want to tell you that God chose to love you. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? And then I told you earlier, it gets personal. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Like, they were twin brothers, by the way. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. 
I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. You get nothing. Go home. Head back to camp. I've got nothing for you. He's like, I've got nothing for you. Go. They were twins. Esau was older. Esau should have gotten a nice inheritance, but he didn't. God chose Jacob. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God chose us just because he loves us. And you can interpret that however you want to, and that's not what we're going to argue about. What we're going to say is that God loved us as people to send his son as a sacrifice for us. You can say it this way. Someone chosen feels more empowered than someone drafted. Am I right? There's a sports reference for you, or a military reference, whatever you want to call it. Someone chosen feels more empowered than someone drafted. Sports analogy breaks down, and so does the military one. But it feels a lot better to know, hey, I chose you. Instead of like, ah, I'm stuck with you. In fact, all of that, all of what God says in Malachi, I want, I want you to know there's 55 verses in Malachi. 47 of those verses is God talking. 47 out of 55 verses is God talking. And he begins, out of all of the ways that he talks to us, he begins emphatically with, I have loved you. And I think that's the best way to start off. He's like, hey, I want to talk to you. I got a lot of stuff I got to say to you. But the first thing I want to say to you is this, I have loved you. Because I think you need to know that above everything else. And I think that we need to know that above everything else, that the God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, the God who flung the stars into space, the God who, the God who cares, he listens to our cries, he loved you and he chose you from before time began how many of us need to know god loves us that is the good news so where's jesus i told you i had a couple good pieces of good news for you number two god always makes a way to see jesus chapter three going back to chapter three verse one i'm going to send my messenger he's talking about elijah which then he's talking about kind of John the Baptist. It's kind of neat how, how he gets into that. And then he's talking about Jesus. Here we go. I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me or make way. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger, my Bible has capital M, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. The messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, he's, he's coming. 400 years later, Isaiah chapter 40 couldn't get out of here without out an Isaiah reference, right? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says it this way. I don't have that page. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. I'm going to flip a page to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Jesus speaking. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John the Baptist. Well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying the wind? No, no, no. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Like that was John the Baptist's role. 
He's like, hey, I'm preparing a way for you to see Jesus. And it's so neat to see that that was also spoke about in Malachi after the two Jewish uh, nations come back together and the remnant, they come back together. It's so great to see that in Malachi, but it's even better to see it all the way back in Isaiah where like before all this happened, where God says, hey, I'm going to send a messenger and he's going to make a way. And then we find out about it there in Malachi. And then we see it again with John the Baptist. And Jesus says, hey, just in case you didn't get the big picture, they were all pointing to me because I'm the one that they're making clear a path for. Jesus is always in your picture, even in the silence. I'm gonna let that sink in for you. That Jesus is always in the picture, even in the silence. So God has a plan, Jesus, and to make his name known. Our soul should rest easier knowing that God is working even in our silence. So. The bad news, good news, where is Jesus? Well, where are we? We're gonna go back to that kind of big idea that I gave you earlier. The world is watching your walk with God. We see that, I'm gonna to go to the New Testament real quick and we're almost done. Ephesians chapter five, verse 15. Paul starts to kind of wrap everything up together. I love it. Ephesians five fifteen. he says it this way. Pay careful attention then to how you live not as unwise people, but as wise. And it makes sense kind of that he's tying all this together, like with friends and family, because it's Ephesians chapter five, verse two, he says, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Walk in love, like there's, it's always pointing back to Jesus. And then he even like in Ephesians, later in Ephesians five, he talks about loving your, your wife, loving your spouse. Chapter five, verse 33 says, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Like, all of it is like to walk wisely because Jesus is with us. Just as God the Father was there speaking about it in Malachi. Or the ESV puts it in Ephesians 5, 15 this way. He says, I want you to look carefully at what you do, how you live. So, Malachi 1, 5, and we're done. God, again, we opened up with this and we close. Your own eyes will see this. And you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. This applies not just to this nation, but God, we want to see it everywhere. Let's do our part to make the Lord's name great everywhere. May our love be big. May our worship be pure. May we live with integrity and bring peace and keep our promises to God, offer well with open hands, and may we love our families. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your messages of truth, your message through the prophet, your message through scripture, but Jesus, we thank you mostly because of you. Because Christ, in your life and your death and in your resurrection, we see our role. To walk wisely and to show other people what you're like. So Jesus, let us love you in that way. May, may we become more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.